0: Walking in the Light. Think of that uh, DC Talk song. I want to be in the light. I want to shine shine like the stars stars in the heaven. heaven. Oh, oh. All right. Never again. It's a good one. I remember Mom laying down in bed, and I had one of those old Discmen, right? So it was kind of like the Walkman. I had one of those when I was younger, but the Discmen had this, you know, for the CDs. And I was listening was my first Christian CD, I think it came out in 95, and uh, I'm laying in bed, and that song came on, and my light just went off, and it freaked me out. You walked by and turned off my light. And I was like, what just happened? I'm singing about being in the light. Call me down again. (laughs) All right, here's the big idea. Walking in the light is seen in faith that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I like Lord of the Rings. I enjoy the books. Uh, we're going on a little road trip with our family. In two weeks, we're going to Kentucky, and we're going to drive. We're going to go see the Creation Museum and the Ark and uh, go into a conference uh, with Answers in Genesis. And I'm going to get uh, the Lord of the Rings for us to listen to on the way. One of the main protagonists in the story is Aragorn, right? And what you find in this story is this band of uh, non-heroes i mean these are just normal i wouldn't say people because you got elves and hobbits but these characters none of them are very special none of them look like they have much to bring to the table but they look at aragorn and they see him as what this is the what this is the king we've been waiting for the true heir of gondor right and so because of that because they believe in him they believe he's the true heir they follow him into danger they 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 risk their lives because their faith in the king transforms the trajectory of their life. When you trust in Jesus as king, it forever transforms the direction or the trajectory of your life. It's true. Sometimes that'll lead you into dangerous territory. But the promise of the Great Commission is that he is with us. Isn't that good news? Let me read. And actually, I want to go back because we almost finished last week. Um, I want to quickly just summarize some of the things we talked about. Can't do all of it because of time, but I'll, I will summarize, I promise, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to do it in less than a minute. This doesn't count, though. Let me read it first, if you can time me. Let me read. I want to read all the way to verse 10, because our text for this evening is verses 5 to 10. So starting in verse 1 of 1 John, chapter 1, John writes, That which was from the beginning, we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me stop there. So if you're going to time me, here's a here's chance. So why is John writing this letter? He'd seen Christ. He'd touched Christ. He'd heard Christ. And he's proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming Jesus, who is the word of life. He is the divine Savior, mm-hmm. King of promise, so that those who hear may have vertical and Horizontal fellowship. Okay, so when you trust in Jesus, two things happen. When you trust in Jesus, you are vertically brought into a relationship with who? With God, right? That's the vertical. But also, you're brought into a relationship with the people of God, right? The church, and that's the horizontal. And John is arguing that when you step into that relationship, when you trust in Jesus, and now you have vertical and horizontal fellowship, that is what brings true Joy. If you want joy? You got to have who? You got to have Jesus, right? You got to, and if you have Jesus, right, you're now part of God's family. You have a relationship with God. You're brought into His family, and in that is true joy found. If you want your neighbors to have joy, if you want your friends to have joy, <clears throat> who do you got to proclaim to them? Christ, proclaim Jesus, so that by God's grace they can be vertically reconciled to God horizontally brought into his family, and have true joy. All right, let's keep reading. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Now, this is important. Here's the message. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. That is staggering. And I'm going to spend a lot of time unpacking that one verse. If we say, now listen to these conditional statements. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Oh, that's so good. Now listen up here. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. Final verse. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's a lot going on here, okay? So what is John doing in this section? So again, my focus tonight is going to be on verses what? 5 to 10. All right? We Even though we've left 1 to 4, I'll reference it several times tonight because that's the context. The gospel involves embracing a truth that transforms. I often say the gospel does two things. It provides forgiveness and, what's that T word? Transformation, okay? And this transformation is seen in how we walk. It's evidenced by how we walk. Now, to walk in the light, what does that mean, to walk in the light? The verb to walk in Greek refers to how you live, how you conduct your life. We'll come back to that. All right, so there's really two main points in this passage. Again, verses 5 to 10. I got two main points and then 3 subpoints at the end based on verses 6 to 10. But let's start with the two main points. Number one, got this in your notes. Walking in the light begins, here's where it begins, with embracing a right view of God. Walking in the light begins with embracing a right view of God. If you're here on Sunday, I talked about propositions. Propositions are assertions, they're statements of, Truth, statements of faith, right? Jesus is God. Jesus is Messiah. Those are propositions. Does it matter what we believe about Jesus? It matters greatly, right? I mean, your, your salvation's at stake. If you don't believe that he's the Christ, you're not going to have eternal life. That's John 20, 31. That's John three thirty six as well, right? So propositions matter. It matters what we believe about God. So walking in the light begins with embracing a right view of God. So, last week, this is what I said. I kind of summarized last week. First John, the whole book, provides the church with a litmus test for the genuineness of their faith. When you read 1 John, you should know whether or not you're a Christian, okay? That's one of the purposes. Remember, there was a mass exodus, a large portion of the church left and they followed after false teaching. Can you imagine? How difficult that must have been. Friends and family leave, and they follow false teachers. And so John writes so that those who remained would have assurance. So they would know that they know that they're saved. And that's why we have this litmus test. You read 1 John, you're going to know whether or not you're part of God's people. And John begins this section by saying, God is light. Like all good theology, John begins with who? It begins with God. Where does the Bible begin? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Knowledge of God is fundamental to our faith. The faith of Christianity has who as its object? God. I mean, Jesus is God. But it matters what we believe about God. So this one phrase says everything. God is light. Let's look at the whole verse. Verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. So there's really two parts to that statement. God is light, number one. Number two, in him there is no darkness at all. A few things here. First, the image of God is light. Where does that come from? Did John make that up? There's a background there. In the Old Testament, God, time and time again, is referred to as light. And not only does light refer to God in the Old Testament, it's also used as a title for the Messiah. Okay, so in the Old, and I'm going to look at some of these passages. In the Old Testament, God is described as light, and the king to come. What's, who's the Messiah? Two R's. The one who will rescue and rule over God's people. That'll help you remember, what does Messiah mean or Christ? The promised king to rule over and rescue God's people. One more thing about light, which gospel uses the word light quite a bit to describe Jesus? Good job. We're in John right now. So we're in John and first John. So we're also going to look at how John uses the title light to describe Jesus. But again, how does John begin? God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Um, Before we do this, let's look at the first part of verse five. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. Hey guys. Now, we need to observe two things here. First, who is him? This is the message we heard from him. Who's him? Well, given the context of verses 1 to 4, him refers to Jesus. Okay? John is saying this is the message we heard from Jesus. What's the message? <coughs> God is light, and in him is no what? And in case you weren't listening, no darkness at all. At all. Okay? So, John, as an apostle, which means a sent one, as a sent one, is tasked with proclaiming the message Jesus proclaimed to him. Now John, what John heard from Jesus, he is now proclaiming to the church, namely the message that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, so let's go to the, the Old Testament and let's look at because this is so helpful. I, I purposefully looked at different places in the Old Testament where this light image is used to describe God, because if if, if I'm studying this passage, I want to know what does it mean that God is light. What does a light do? And if we're going to use that title for God, what does that teach us about God? I mean, I hope you guys want to know that. So let's do it. Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Okay, so what phrase helps us there to discern what light means? The Lord is my light and my My salvation. Okay, good. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119.130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Habakkuk 3.4, his brightness was like the light. The glory was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Ezekiel 10.4, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. One more. Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I had to translate for intermediate Hebrew all of Micah. It is the hardest Hebrew with Job. Job's hard, too, in the Old Testament. It was fun. All right. Um, taken together. The image, So I'm going to summarize our findings. I don't expect you to remember everything I just said, so I'm going to condense it down to one definition. God is light means what? Okay, so taken together, the image of God as light, three things, speaks of, and do not I'll tell you when to write this down, because I'm going to kind of move from the greater to the lesser. <laughs> the image of God as light speaks of God's glorious and holy presence. Okay, that's the first thing. His revelation, He is a God who makes Himself known, and that is conveyed by the image of light. The light reveals things. God came to reveal Himself. He gives us His Word to show us what He's like. And thirdly, it's used for His salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So God, as light in the Old Testament speaks to His holiness, His moral purity, in Him is no darkness at all, right? So His moral purity, His self-revealing nature And thirdly, his salvation. So here's where we can write it down. God is light, is holy, self-revealing, and saving. That is the big picture. This title that's used of God throughout the Old Testament reveals really three things about God. He's holy, he's self-revealing, and he's a God who saves. Does that make sense? Okay. Then we have the follow-up phrase, and in him is no darkness at all. Which means there's nothing false in God. There's no sin in him. Amen? There's no sin in him. He is perfectly holy and righteous. Now, the implication here is that only those who are perfectly holy and righteous can dwell with him. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not perfectly holy and righteous. Well, keep reading in 1 John because then you're going to get to 1 John 2.1. Where it says, if anyone does sin, I'll raise my hand first. If anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning, he satisfied God's wrath by taking that wrath in our place. So who makes us holy and righteous? Jesus Christ. Oh, all right. That God is light is proclaimed throughout the entire Old Testament. And again, this great truth finds its fulfillment, its ultimate revelation in who? What are the three things that this image reveals about God? He's holy, self-revealing, and he saves. What does that describe? He's holy, who came to reveal God, who came to save? God's holiness, his self-revealing nature, and his salvation, God's holiness, his self-revealing nature, and his salvation culminate in the life, death, and resurrection of who? Of Jesus. So according to John, this light has been seen in Jesus, and that's First John 1, 1 to 4. All right, let me just move on from that because I got more I want to say, but I want to finish tonight on time. I'll say this part. Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is the word of life from the beginning. He's God in the flesh. In verses 1 to 4, what does John establish about Jesus? Now, this is good review. The false teachers, those who left the church, embraced a message. And what did the message deny? They denied the deity of Christ. They denied the incarnation of Christ, right? And they pushed for a loose morality, right? So sin's not a big deal. You know, Jesus isn't God, and he's not the Christ. God didn't become man. That is at the heart of Christianity, right? And so John begins out the gate, emphasizing these key doctrines that are being denied by the false teachers. All right, so as mentioned earlier, not only is God described as light in the Old Testament, who else is? The Messiah, right? So, and again, friends, like, oh, it's like, who is it? Right? I mean, who's, the God's going to come, the Messiah's going to come. Who's it going to be? Who's coming? Yes, because Jesus is God, and he is the promised king. All right, um, before we go to the Old Testament, let's start with John's Gospel. Let's look at where Jesus is described as light in John's Gospel. This will be helpful. John 1, 4 to 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not what? Overcome it. That was a memory verse past week. John 3, 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And then probably the most well-known is John 8:12, one of the I am sayings. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right. These passages declare Jesus to be God. Let's go back further to the Old Testament and look at Isaiah, where the Messiah is described as light. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I will give you, talking about the servant to come, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So the king to come is going to be a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 59, 9 and 10 describes our problem. What's our problem? We saw it in John 3. We don't love the light. We love naturally the what? The darkness. Because we're in the darkness, right? So here's the problem. Isaiah 59, 9 and 10. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. When the sun should be at its brightest, we still don't see because we're what? We're blind. We're in the dark. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. That is an indictment against humanity. We're in the darkness. Is there good news? Isaiah 61: to 3. Here's the solution. Arise. This is the next chapter, by the way. So in Isaiah 59, we get the problem. The indictment. But then we get the solution, the hope, in the next chapter. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. There again, God's glory, his holiness, is compared to light. In verse 3, and nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the Lord will come as The light breaking into the darkness. And of course, it's Jesus who comes to fulfill that promise. Amen? So in the book of Isaiah, we find the problem. Sin is in the world. People are stumbling around in darkness, which is an image for sin. There's injustice. Mankind is described like dead men, right? However, God provides an amazing solution. The light's going to come. The light's going to break into the darkness. The nations are going to stream to the light. Who is the light? Jesus. Who's God? Jesus is God. Who's the Messiah? It's Jesus. So in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, the Messiah to come is described as a light that will bring people out of darkness. And then in Isaiah 61 to 3, which I just read, the day of salvation promised by God Is described as light breaking through the darkness, the glory of the Lord. So, when I lived in Africa back in 2010, I think I've shared this before. I think during that year, I had electricity only half the time I was there. And man, listen, I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know if I've ever worked so hard in my life. I was I was probably sleeping four and a half hours a night for six months. I was teaching six classes every day. I was pastoring a youth group, and every Sunday, I'd get on like a little motorcycle, and they would take me to a different village to preach, with a translator, by the way. It was fun. It was a good time. I wasn't married then, <laughs> and the Lord sustained me. But the most frustrating thing about being in Cameroon, in this village in New up in the mountains, was again, I'm grading papers, I'm <clears throat> preparing lectures, all of a sudden, the lights would go out. <laughs> and you women would love this. I would hear scampering, because I had rats. And I'm like, man, I can't see you! Throwing knives in me. <laughs> just like, what's going on? <laughs> I made my own traps, by the way, and they never worked. <laughs> they never worked. Um, and so I- I'm trying to find a flashlight or my little box of matches. I had candles, you know. And I try to have that stuff close by. But sometimes, you know, I'll be walking to the bathroom. And because we're up in the mountains, there's no city nearby. It's pitch black, right? Pitch black. And sometimes, when I least expect it, what oh, would Come on, and I can see everything, and the little scampering stopped. <laughs> Thankfully, Ugh. God is light, represents life and salvation, even true knowledge. This light has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who came to bring us out of darkness into the into the light. You've been, if you've trusted in Christ, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into. Kingdom of his beloved sons, Paul and Colossians. Right. What does his declaration mean? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if you understand the situation affecting the churches that John was addressing, again, there was this mass exodus. False teachers had infiltrated the church, and a large group from within the church left. And they embraced a teaching that denied that Jesus was the Christ, denied the deity of Christ, and pushed for a loose morality, right? Sin's not that serious. Live how you want. Why was this declaration so needed? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God demands light, demands holiness. So does sin matter? Of course it matters. And God is the source of truth. This was aimed... At the ungodly living flowing out of the ungodly beliefs, which marked those who had left the church. Ungodly living doesn't fly in the face of a holy God, right? It doesn't work. Furthermore, who's the source of truth? God. And Jesus, as God, came to reveal the truth. So Jesus, as the light, has come to reveal God's holiness, God's knowledge, and salvation to a dark world. The church then Needed that message. The church now still needs that same message. Let me summarize. That was point one, and then point two. It was like two points, so we're, we're getting there. God is light. What does that mean? He's holy, self-revealing, and saving, and has been seen. Now, this is just incredible. So, I mean, you read the Old Testament, and you see how God's described. And, and you should be in awe. I remember I taught Old Testament survey in Cameroon, and I had this one student say, hey Chris, you know, what, I don't understand. How do I apply this? And I, the Old Testament's so hard. I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's like they, they wanted to be in the, like one of them, he wanted to be in the New Testament. How does the Old Testament help me? I said, here's what you do you praise God for who he is. How is God revealed in the Old Testament? The same way he's revealed in the New. He's faithful. He's holy. He's awesome. He's good. God is light. He's holy, self revealing, and saving. And according to John, has been seen, heard, and touched in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who came to give us both vertical and horizontal fellowship so that we could have what? Once you have vertical fellowship with God and horizontal fellowship with the church, what do you have? It starts with J, ends with OI. Joy. 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 How does this declaration relate to what follows? Here's point number two. Walking in the light involves a right orientation toward God and sin. Walking in the light involves a right orientation toward God and sin. Now, now, what do I mean by orientation? This refers to the direction of our thoughts in our lives, okay? Walking in the light involves a right orientation toward God, but also toward sin. The gospel transforms the way we think we see and we live. It's true. It transforms the direction of our lives. Go back to Aragorn. Why, why did this band of hobbits and elves and dwarfs, I guess a dwarf, Gimli, why did they follow Aragorn? Why did they dive headfirst into peril? Because truth, right, faith in this truth that he's the king transformed the trajectory of their lives points us in the right direction. It gives us the gospel. Tra- when you believe that Jesus is king, who lived, died, and rose again, it transforms the direction of your life. It gives you new inclinations. It gives you a new trajectory with a new destination guaranteed in Christ. Again, this, this movement in the right direction flows out of a right view of God. Um, Mike, you know this. In navigation, you fix your eyes on a destination, Right? You're fixated, and even if you're just walking, if you're if you're way out in the woods, I've been lost before and it's no fun. But then you might see a light. I mean, that's probably my house, right? There it is. So you start walking towards that what? Towards that light. What you fix your eyes on dictates the direction of your life. As long as I'm watching that light, I'm going to be walking towards that light. When we fix our eyes on God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the truth it affects the direction of our lives. That's the point here. Okay, so again, walking in the light involves a right orientation toward God and sin. Because again, if you've trusted in Christ, you're now moving toward God and away from what? And wasn't that illustration so good on Sunday? It wasn't mine. It was um, Portland's. He said, the interesting thing, and again, I'm a bow hunter. And so any kind of hunter, even if you hunt with a gun, when you're trying to kill something, you're looking at it, right? When I bow hunt, I have my peep side, and depending on the yardage, I mean, 20 yards, I got my 20-yard pin, 30 yards, 30-yard pin. I am aiming at that thing, trying to kill it. But Ortland said, killing sin doesn't work that way. You look away from the thing, and you look toward who? If we're going to kill sin, we look away from sin, and we look toward Jesus. That's just so ironic to me, but it's so true, amen? Again, if you've trusted in Christ... It transforms the trajectory of your life. And you're now oriented toward Him and away from sin. All right, this is what I'm most excited about. Verses 6 to 10. John seeks to help the church, those who have remained, to see whether or not they are truly in the light, whether or not they truly have fellowship with God. How? By laying out five conditional statements. Let's look at these five statements that make up verses 6 to 10. Again, How do we know whether or not we're in the light? Now, guys, how do you know? Well, if you've trusted in Jesus, that's the most important thing. But what if you say, I've trusted in Jesus, but I I don't care to obey him as king. I don't really care about what his word says. I don't care about the church. I I think I'm just going to do my own thing. I prayed a prayer 20 years ago, so I should be covered. I'm not really concerned about living according to his word. Should that person have assurance? I hope all of us can say confidently, no, not at all. All right, so number one, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's the first one, that's verse six. Second, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's verse seven. The third one comes in verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if someone goes around saying, hey, I'm morally perfect, I don't sin anymore, should that person have assurance according to John? No, they're deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. The next one's in verse 9, and again, this is the one we're probably most familiar with. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the fifth one is this, the fifth statement. Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, then we don't need a Savior, right? So how can you be saved? (laughs) I don't need to be. In Jesus, the light has come. What does life in the light, life in God look like? When you see someone who says they're a Christian, what do you expect to see? That's what John's getting at here. Okay. Here we see the importance, and I mentioned this last week in the introduction. John, First John, is all about doctrine and doing. Orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxis, which is right living. Both are important. You can't say, well, as long as I believe the right things, it doesn't matter how I live. That's called hypocrisy. Or, as long as I live a good life, it doesn't matter what I believe. That's moral Do-goodism, right? That's not going to work. So it matters both because right living flows out of right belief. Amen? That's what the gospel does. The gospel transforms the way we live our lives. So in verses 6 to 10, we have the fruit that flows from life in the light, fellowship with God. So those who believe that God is light, those who understand this incredible truth— and have responded to it appropriately. How do we respond to the gospel? Two things. Repent and believe are now moved by the Spirit to live differently. Now we come to verses 6 to 10. Here we have the litmus test for walking in the light, fellowship with God. And I want to start with the phrase, walk in the light. I said I'd come back to that. What does this mean, to walk? To walk. From the Greek verb, peripeteo, which means to live. Or behave in a customary manner. Just the way you live your life. That's what it means to walk. To walk, especially in the context of 1 John, has to do with two things. Belief and behavior. Okay, And guess what? The verb itself is found in the present tense. Which refers to what kind of action? Ongoing. Continuous. Okay, So walking in the light for the Christian, is it a one-time thing? it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Let's look to John's Gospel for help here. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, walking in the light involves responding appropriately to God's revelation in Jesus. It involves following Jesus. And again, following Jesus is ongoing. Now, according to Jesus, to follow Jesus is to not walk in the way, Not walk in the darkness. Therefore, to follow Jesus is to walk in the, in the light. And it further involves living like Jesus. Remember First John 2, 6? Whoever claims to abide in him must live as Jesus did. Oh, how do we do that? Keep reading. <laughs> the ability to live like Jesus flows out of fellowship with Jesus. Okay? If you've been united to Christ, you have the power of Christ to live like, live like Christ. So, according to our passage, to walk in the light begins with embracing verse 5, which is what? God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is the Savior, right? God is the one who reveals himself to us. God is the one who is holy. And who brought those things to culmination, to fulfillment? Jesus Christ. I use an expression. I'm going to use again on Sunday. To walk in the light is faith that follows. If I asked you what is faith, you might say, well, it's belief. It is belief. But faith is this, right? It's holding on. It's trusting for dear life, right? I mean, I, I've used this illustration with kids, but, I, you know, I didn't inspect this chair when I sat down. I trusted that it would hold me up, right? Faith is embracing Jesus and believing that his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient to save us from eternal hell. Amen. It's faith follows. Faith results in what? Following Jesus. I, I kind of talk about these things together. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. But if you trust it in Jesus, what are you going to do with Jesus? Hey, I'm going to give you a little spoiler. So on Sunday, we're going to look at uh, the, the calling of the disciples. And really what it is, you have two men that are John the Baptist's disciples. And the next day, John the Baptist is hanging out, and Jesus walks by. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two men, they begin to follow Jesus. And one of them is Andrew, Peter's brother. And he goes to Peter and he says, bro, we have found the Messiah. And before that, he goes, hey, Jesus, where are you going? Where are you going? We want to come. We want to be with you, right? The point is this. He believed. Andrew believed that he was the Messiah. And what did he want to do? He wanted to follow him. He wanted to be with him. Because faith does what? It follows. It follows. They follow. All right, I want to look at three takeaways. Okay, these are my, my sub points. So again, we had those five statements from six all the way to 10. And I want to look at three takeaways from those five statements. And here they are again, starting in verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and then, listen to this promise. In the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. (laughs) That's the last thing I want to do, is make the faithful God unfaithful, Right? To, to, to do something or say something that makes people think that God's not true or faithful, right? But if we say we've not sinned, we make them a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, so I have three points to summarize those five statements. Number one, those who walk in the light do not walk in the darkness. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Paul says something, um, 2 Corinthians six fourteen. All of us are familiar with this. If you've been a Christian for more than five years, you've heard this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, you got to keep reading, okay? It's not just talking about marriage, by the way. <clears throat> keep reading. Now, does the principle apply to marriage? Yes, of course it does. But then he goes on to say, Paul says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Then he goes back and talks about Israel and their idols. Here's the question. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. Now, does that mean that we completely separate from unbelievers? No, but rather we separate from their beliefs and their behavior, their doctrine and their doing. So what does it mean to walk in the darkness? What does that look like? What does that look like? It's 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, now flesh there in Greek is sarx. It refers to the sin nature, okay? So the desires of the sinful fallen nature, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that that Greek there is tough. It's... It's boasting in the things of this world. Pride can mean boasting, coxomides. It's boasting in this world. Is that of the Lord? No, we should boast in who? We should boast in Jesus. Those things are not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides how long? Forever. Good verse. So, again, the question was, what does it mean to walk in the darkness? It's following after the world in place of Jesus It's seen in putting the world on the throne rather than Christ on the throne. Verses 5 and 6 got to be read together. Again, here we see that walking in the light involves both right doctrine. What do we have to believe in verse 5? What did Jesus tell John? And now John's passing on to us. What's his message? God is light. and In him is no darkness at all. So does it matter what we believe? You think walking in the light involves right belief? Yes, but then verse 6, it invites also what? Right living. Thank you, brother. Right living. So, to walk in darkness is to reject, verse 5, God's revelation in Christ, and to not practice the truth, verse 6. As the church, we must be guardians of right belief and right living. Right? Shouldn't we be concerned about both? We must be stalwarts of truth. I didn't say stalwarts. I said stalwarts. 1 Timothy 4.16, I pray this for our pastors every day. Every day. I don't mean five days a week or six. I mean every day I pray this for our pastors. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. Now, does that just apply to pastors? No. Should every Christian watch their life? should every Christian watch the doctrine? If you want to walk in the light, you better be concerned about both. All right, second thing is this, right? There's three things here. Number two, those who walk in the light have fellowship with God's people and forgiveness. That's verse seven. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 7 should be read as a cause-and-effect relationship. Remember, to walk in the light denotes the embrace of God's revelation in Christ, faith in Jesus, and living like Jesus. It's faith that follows. It's living in fellowship with God. As we saw back in verse 3, faith in Jesus results in both vertical fellowship and horizontal fellowship. So those who belong to God's people Those who have been forgiven are those who have responded to God's revelation in Christ, the gospel. And this amounts to what? Salvation amounts to what? That J word, joy. So according to John, and verse 7 is tough. It really is because, again, just act like you've never heard this verse. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light we have fellowship with, But what would you expect there? I wouldn't. I would expect we have fellowship with God. But he says we have fellowship with one another. So according to John, there is a correlation between walking in the light and fellowship with God's people. We could even argue that walking in the light is intended to take place in the context of the local church. The attitude of I love God, but want nothing to do with this church, finds no support in the Bible, right? No support. Faith that follows is intended to lead us into a church body where we can continue to walk in the light with brothers and sisters in Christ, the light of the world people. Who's that? The church. Our fellowship, and this is 1 John four twelve. our fellowship proclaims the power of the gospel. You think about the church, and maybe this is the only church you've ever known, but I've been in other states and other parts of the world, and I've, I've been in church, and we see it thankfully in our church, but Every church is going to be what? There's going to be different people, different colors, different bank accounts, white collar, blue collar, right? Even sometimes different languages. But what unites us? Why is the church so beautiful? Those differences are not what make us the church. What makes us the church is what unites us, and that's faith in who? It's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. You know, from a human perspective, the church doesn't make sense. In Ephesians 2, 11-22, something miraculous happens. Jews and Gentiles who hated each other. This would have been like segregation in the 50s in the South. They wanted nothing to do with each other. Through the gospel, they're now brought into the same church family, loving and serving one another. doesn't make sense to the world, but it's the power of what? It's the power of the gospel. The power of Jesus, right? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is... The application of Jesus' saving work on the cross is for those who are walking in the light, those who have fellowship with God, those who have believed in the Son of God. So walking in the light is evidence of faith in Jesus. Now, how are we to understand that last phrase in verse 7? And the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from some sin, all sin. Okay, so verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from... All sin. So those who walk in the light have been cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus. Now, this verse is meant to instill assurance. Those who walk in the light, who have received God's revelation in Christ by faith, they trusted in Jesus, who follow after Jesus, are those who have been cleansed from all sin and are thus enabled to have both vertical and horizontal fellowship with God. Right? Vertical fellowship with God, horizontal fellowship with God's people. Now, the present tense of the verb, to cleanse. Again, present tense in Greek denotes what kind of action? Ongoing or continuous. So, the present tense of the verb, to cleanse, helps us to see that for those who have fellowship with God, the efficacy, that's a tough word, but the effectiveness, the efficacy of Christ's sacrificial work continues to be applied. Does the blood ever run out? Is there ever a moment when we should be like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm still forgiven. If you've trusted in Jesus, guess what? What's the promise in verse 7? Cleanses us from some sin. Oh, no, friend. All sin. Now, the final verses, which we're going to, that's verses 8 to 10. That's our last point. The final verses help us to see why this is so important. Namely, that in Christ, God has done, now get this, in Christ, God has done something to prevent the interruption of our fellowship with Him, in light of the fact that we still do what? Sin. We still do what? Yeah. Still sin. But God is light means He's perfectly holy. Are we perfectly holy? Yeah. Yeah, well, we're positionally perfectly holy. Amen. Yeah. Morally, we're not. We will be one day. That's a glorification. But this is this is remarkable. Oh man, I was I was counseling a young guy uh, just the other day. And this dude's crying. He's 20, almost 23 years old. He's crying. Out in his front yard because he says, I've done something I don't think God can forgive. I don't know if there's any way God can forgive me. But he's a believer. I said, bro, go with me on a journey to 2 Corinthians 21. He's like, sure. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. said, so have you trusted in Jesus? Yes, I have. I love Jesus. I said, the Father sees who when he sees you? Christ and his righteousness. He was blown away by that. He wasn't crying sad tears anymore. He was now crying what I call happy tears, which are my favorite. Don't like sad tears. Happy tears. Point number three, then we're done. Those who walk in the light, acknowledge their sin, but rest in the Savior. It's really important. Okay? I was counseling a guy this morning in my office. Messed up. Repent, brother. Turn. But if you've done that, what's the other thing you can do? You can rest. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus applied to you. Amen? You can rest. So those who walk in the light, they acknowledge their sin. When we sin, we own it. We own up to it. But we can also do what? We can rest. That's verses 8 to 10. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. It's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from what? All. Oh, there is again, all and right. I mean, what does John want us to get? His saving work is exhaustive. It is definitive. It is all-encompassing, okay? Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That clock's wrong. I got five am perfect. That's all we need. <laughs> There's an emphasis on truth in 1 John. Does truth matter? God's people are to be people of the truth. As we've already established, God is light, and in him is no what? No darkness at all means nothing false. Right? Therefore, nothing false should be in who? In God's people. Those who are in the light. Now, three times in our passage, John warns against deception. Note the progression. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, oh, it gets worse. We make him a liar. Whoa. And his word is not in us. We lie. We deceive ourselves. We make him a liar. These verses provide us with a window into the worldview of the secessionists, those who left the church, those who departed from the church, they had deceived themselves, right? They had deceived themselves. It would seem that they no longer viewed themselves as sinful. Why is that dangerous? To think I'm I'm good. I, I mean, sin's not a big deal. I'm forgiven. I can live how I want to live. Why does that not work? Because what will that lead to? Because again, Martin Luther said, you know, I am simul to et peccator, meaning I'm simultaneously justified and sinful. Okay, so I'm justified. But I'm also still sinful, which means I'm completely <laughs> dependent on who? Because I'm sinful, I need his grace every day for holy living, right? But if I think I'm not a sinner, I'm good, then I stop being dependent and I become independent. And then all you know what breaks loose, literally. I didn't say it. I think it would have been appropriate, but I didn't say it. As Christians, we must continually be aware of our struggles and the sin that continues to rear its ugly head in our lives. We must continue to make war against our sin. We are not yet rid of the influence of sin, even though we have new hearts, new minds, and new standing, right? New standing with God in Christ. Therefore, we must be vigilant in our efforts to fight against sin. But is there hope? Is there hope in our continuing battle for sanctification? Of course. Because rather than trying to hide our sin, or worse, ignore it, we must confess it to the only one who can deal with it. And that confession comes with a wonderful promise. Did you hear it? Listen, this is important. Verses 8 to 10, we're going to end here. Verses 8 and 10 represent the inappropriate response to sin, denial and concealment. Don't deny it. Don't conceal it. Verse 9 represents the appropriate response, which is what? Confess it, which comes with a beautiful promise. What's the promise? We confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just. Man, this is the meat. This is the most important part of the teaching. And I got two minutes. All right. To confess sin in the Greek, that word to confess means to acknowledge or admit. Okay, that's the first step. The first step is to acknowledge your sin, okay? Sin, um, it means rebellion or disobedience to God's law. That's what sin is. But then we see he's faithful and just. The act of acknowledging our sin is met with this incredible declaration of God's character. If we confess our sin, what? How interesting is that? He's faithful and just. What does this mean, by the way? If I can get to this, we're good. Why? But here's the question. How How can God justly forgive sinners like us? God has to punish sin. He has to. Boom. There he did punish sin. 2,000 years ago. He is just. He did deal with sin. He punished it in his son. You know, the new covenant promise. This is what's so interesting. The new covenant. I'm thinking Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 promises Mm -hmm. forgiveness. If God promises something, he's going to do it. Amen? He's just. He's faithful, but he's just. How do we get away with it? I mean, how can we be forgiven? How can God justly forgive sinners like us? He's got to punish sin. And my sister said it right. He did. He punished it in his son allows him to what? Pardon us. One pastor said it so well. Jesus was treated the way we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. Amen? That's the gospel. God is faithful and righteous. He's faithful and just. He's able to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the cross. The cross is everything. Amen? Oh. You know, about 80% of Americans right now are in debt. That's mortgage, credit card, school. I hate debt. You know, I, I hate the word. I'll I'll never make a car payment again. I just I won't. I can't. I don't like debt. But there's a greater debt still. Did you know that? There's a greater debt still, and it's hanging over all humanity. What's that debt? It's a sin debt. But who paid it? Christ. So we admit, we confess, but then what do we do? What's the promise? We what? Because of the promise, right? We rest in the Lord who is able to forgive us and make us clean on the basis of his faithfulness and his justice. So, how should we respond to sin as Christians? We confess it and we, we rest. We rest. We confess and we rest. I was going to tell a story, 30 seconds. Man, I was crazy in college. Now, I wasn't morally irresponsible. I wasn't living for the wall. I was following Jesus, but I just, I was a little crazy. I did some crazy things. I loved adventure. I still love adventure, but now I'm, I've, like, tempered it. You know, I, mean, I just, I got a family. I got to take care of them. So I found this tunnel in downtown Waxahachie, and I said, guys, let's see where this goes. What? Let's go back to the dorm. We get some flashlights. Let's go on an adventure. Who knows what we'll find? Why? I've never been in there with you. Well, no. Let's go. And we did, and we got into some nasty stuff, man. We smelled like death, the worst I've ever smelled. I smelled bad. Okay. We go back to the dorms. Like y'all ride in the bed of my truck. You're not getting in my truck. I had a towel. And we get to the dorms and we go to the showers. And as we're showering, I'm just like seeing green and brown just come off of me. But after that shower, after a, a healthy you know, working over with dial soap, antibacterial, right? I was what? I was clean. It was wonderful. That's a small picture of what Christ does for us. We are dirty and stinky because of sin, but Christ took our sin upon himself. I call it the great exchange. We took our sin and we get his righteousness. So friends, if you're a Christian, are you still going to sin? Remember First John The message of 1 John is not that we can be sinless, but by the power of the Spirit, we can sin less, right? So when we do sin, we confess it and we rest. We rest in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great reminder. Help us to share this good news with others this week. We love you, Jesus.